First, welcome everybody. Um, I want to welcome Shihan Cameron Quinn from Australia. Um, I'm very excited for this interview. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. So do I call you Dr. Peter or Peter? Peter's fine. Yeah, Peter's fine. <laughs> People call me Dr. Pete. They call me Peter. It's all good. So um, let me start with this. Um, obviously, you had a unique and close uh, association with the founder of Kyokushin Karate, Masoyama, who, of course, Kyokushin practitioners are obviously familiar with, and even people who are lightly familiar with martial arts are familiar with. Um, how did that connection come about? Um, well, as a youngster, when I was training as a little boy, well, a high school boy in Australia, we're in high school from about the age of 12 or 13. We don't have a middle school. We used to have um, uh, seven years of primary school and five years of high school. And so I started my karate training grade eight. And then growing up, especially, I became more uh, focused on it in grade 11 and 12. And I wanted to get to Japan and train with Masayama. So uh, I was looking at I was working on the weekends as a bellhop in hotels around the town I lived in and uh, saving as much as I could. But I realized that no matter how hard I say, saved, I wasn't really going to be able to support myself for any more than a few weeks or so on. So I looked around to try and find a way where I could go and train in Japan and have someone else pay for it. And I found uh, a scholarship where I could go and train in Japan for one year. I'd have my uh, accommodation and food provided. And all I had to cover was things like training costs and extra food and things like that. So I was 17 when I finished high school and about uh, six weeks later off, I went to Japan and I lived in Japan uh, for one year. I didn't train with Masoyama at the Hombu for that entire year because uh, I wasn't really close enough to it. but. I was able to go on long weekends and school holidays. And uh, sometimes I even took time off work. Uh, I remember in the eighth All Japan Championship, uh, which was 1976. Um, Soshu, Shigeru Yasugoyama, Miyuki Miura, Bobby Lowe, uh, um, Ashihara Hideyuki, um, Jacques Sandalescu from New York, um, Luke Hollander. Antonio Pinero, um, uh, a lot of really important people were coming. And so Masayama approached me during training one day and said, would I mind doing the interpreting for him? Because he had all these people coming. Um, and of course I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, and so times like that, I would take time off work, uh, off school. I, I was pretty, liberal with my approach to school anyway. I mean, clearly I wasn't going to Japan to go to school. I was going to Japan to, to train with Masayama. So anyway, that's how it happened. I got this scholarship. I went and lived in Japan for a year uh, and I became, um, I did a couple of interpreting jobs for Masayama uh, and then that's where it all started. So it really is a case of being in the right place at the right time. So you, you initially got there in 1976? Yes, I was there from January 17, 1976 until January 14, 1977, one year. If you were there one year earlier, you could you could have caught the first World Open live. I missed it by just a few weeks. That's true. It was in uh, late November 75, uh, and I got there in early January 76. So just missed it by six or seven weeks. How did you learn to speak Japanese? When and how did you learn to speak Japanese? When I was in Japan, when I first went over, I couldn't speak any Japanese. So what I did was I had a Japanese lesson, one hour lesson, once a day, five days a week for three months. And I would use that. And I also had a series of books that I would study from. So I really think a combination of a young brain uh, and being immersed in it in an environment where there were zero English speakers uh, and 
getting those lessons once a day for three months and then once a week uh, for the rest of the year after that. It was just a matter of trial and error. And, uh, you know, particularly in areas of interest, in my areas of interest, uh, where I, uh, uh, for example, um, karate and so on. Yeah, I just, I, I study those areas of the language more than um, normal. Got it. Excuse you know, it's interesting when you, you mentioned quite a lineup there um, from uh, Shiguro Oyama, who was my teacher, um, his brother, uh, his brother, uh, Shian Miura. Um, you mentioned um, Shian um, Ashihara. Ashi. And others. Bobby Lo Shihan. Yeah, from Peter Hawaii. Chong. Yeah. Peter Chong from Singapore, who ran the Asian area for a long time. I would have, I mean, this is very subtle stuff, and I don't even know if you were paying attention to the intricacies, but it would have been interesting for me to see them interact because, for example, my teacher and Ashihara, they have their own personality um, clashes together and um, and others within that group. So it would have just been interesting for me to see how they interacted with each other. Did you notice anything interesting? Yeah. I'm getting over a bit of a cold. No problem. Yes, you did. Uh, look, I'm 17 at the time, so uh, it's not like I had a deeply developed observant brain about human psychology, but there's no doubt that Ashihara was um, a man unto himself, and I'm being as polite as I can. Um, you know, he... he um, I think he actually became quite famous through the comic book series. He did. And they called him the Kenka Judan or the street fighting 10th Dan. Yep, that's um, but in reality, it was nothing like that. He was a great teacher and he had a great student in the eighth all Japan, his student Joko Ninomiya, who yes. consequently lives in America and started Sabaki. Uh, he was a beautiful um, competitor and he, made the final of the eighth all japan uh ashihara shihan was expecting him to win but he got beaten by sato toshikazu not sato katsuaki who won the worlds it was a different sato sensei was and, it the one uh, they called little sato uh they probably did but he wasn't much more much smaller i can tell you now he's still a big strong man yeah um and so you know i could see um at one stage there, one of those people, and I won't mention names, told him in no uncertain terms to sit, stick his head in and shut up. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't long after that that he left and started mm -hmm. Ashihara. So he was like a round peg in a square hole. He just didn't really fit. Well, I have to say about Miyuki Miura, Yasuhiko Oyama and Shigeru Oyama, um, I took some great photos of them. And, of course, back then the Internet didn't exist, so I mailed them off. In, as a letter and a couple of months later I got a really nice card back from Shigeru Oyama with a picture of him on the front and he had written uh, dear Mr Kamirong thank you very much picture with a very was v-e-r-r-y thank you very much picture and he was a very sweet man he was a harsh man and of course he was a strong referee and uh, Yasuhiko, of course, he's just like the, the court jester. He's constantly making everyone laugh and happy. And and Miyuki Miura was very, I think, very quiet, very humble. And I was actually sitting at the dinner table surrounded by these people, amazed at how who they were. And I had read of Miyuki Miura's name from This Is Karate, in the back of This Is Karate. And uh, I'm sitting, I was sitting there talking to a gentleman and his English is very good. And I said to him, your English is really good. And he said, yeah, I live in America. I said, oh, my name's Cameron. What's yours? He said, it's Miyuki Miura. <laughs> and of course, I nearly fell over. He'd been speaking to me with no expectation, no attitude. He was just a really nice man, you know. And to me, that was always, you know, so I always said that if he wanted to produce fighters, champions, there's no point in them being strong without any sense of humanity. And so people like Miyuki Miura always struck me as being the perfect example of the warrior that Solsai talked about. 
Yeah, he actually, um, of course, like I said, my teacher was Shigeru Oyama, but I fought in many tournaments around the country, the U.S. and the world with the three of them, the three that you mentioned, because they were all there, of course. And <clears throat> Shiamior was always very nice to me for some reason. I don't know why, maybe just because he was a nice guy, like you said. But I remember one time I had a fight and I lost to a world champ, you know, a, one, of, one of the best Kyokushin fighters in the world at the time. I lost a decision. I wasn't really that upset, but I was, I don't know, I wasn't celebrating because I did lose. And mm. the tournament was over and we are all showered and changed. And, and Shiamiura said to me, you did a great job, you know. He made me feel really good. So I I always remembered that. So anyway. Yeah. Um, what um what was it? How how much did you get to train with Masoyama? Like in his dojo with him teaching class? Uh the first year, I'd say 90% of the time my teacher was uh uh Hiroshige Shihan. Hiroshige Shihan was the trainer of Yamaki, Kazumi, Midori, all those top fighters who dominated the old Japan for a long, long time. Uh, and he was a brown belt at Hombu then. And he was an Uchideshi. He was a little older as an Uchideshi. Um, so he, he had that respect in Japan. There's a very strict hierarchy with age as well as rank. So he was actually a little older than all the other Uchideshi, so he was respected by Solsai. He had a little more freedom than the other Uchideshi, and he was my main instructor. And I think in that first year, I could literally count the number of times I trained with Solsai on one hand, hardly at all. Uh, and then in 79, I went back for three months or four months, can't remember. But uh, at that time, I was allowed to join in what they call the big man's class. The big man's class was over 80 kilograms. <laughs> Isn't it funny what they class, 80, what's that? It's like 175 pounds. That's a like big man Japan. in their language. Yeah. And Solsai would take that class once a week. And then on occasion, I was even allowed to join in the Uchideshi training once a week. And then in 84, I went back at the time of the uh, 83, the third world tournament and then I stayed as an Uchideshi for three months and at that time I trained with Solsai uh, at least once if not twice a week. What was what um, was unique what was unique you know if you think about a guy who started an organization to this day has millions and millions of practitioners not only obviously was he a great leader obviously his fighting was legit but what about him about his aura or however you want to say it was so powerful that it that it inspired so many people asking you who was you know right next to him uh, i remember the first time i was called up to his office i'd been training at hombu for a few months and he called me up to his office and the secretary whose name was christine Wilby, she was a new zealand girl she said, just go up to the office, bow and stand at the door till he calls you. So I went up the office and I bowed and I was, and he looked up and the, I've heard stories about the power of his gaze. And I'd heard stories about um, the power of some people's gaze. But this is the first time I'd legitimately, legitimately experienced someone who could actually reduce you with the power of the, with the energy in their gaze. And I remember I pushed my elbow out to steady myself on the frame of the door. And then what he did was he smiled and the energy reversed and he actually filled me up again with, with energy. And I remember thinking this was the most surreal thing I'd ever seen in my life. And then many years later, he introduced me to a, a very nice man named Takeda so, uh, Takeda. Shokan, Sokan, who was a, uh, he ran an organization called Kambukai. It was a, a shitori organization and his students competed in the first and second all Japan and did very well. They're very high quality students. And there was a, a bit of a problem in one of them. And when Solsai introduced me to the man, he said, Kamiro, he used to call me 
He used to call me Gameron, Gameron, Gameron. He said, I've been challenged in the newspaper, challenged in magazines, on the telephone, on TV, on the radio, but only one man ever, man ever walked up to me face to face and said, you and me right now. And that's this man, Takeda. And Takeda Sensei's going, oh, please, no, that's the, don't remind me of the rash behavior of a foolish young man. Well, many years later, I got, Takeda Sensei was on the Gold Coast and he called me up and said, can we go to dinner? So I went to dinner with Takeda Sensei and we were talking, he's, he's very, very deep thinking martial artist, a real martial artist. And I said to him, when you challenge Solsai, what chance did you give yourself? And he said, said two interesting things. He said, first of all, if the average person is thinking three years ahead, Masoyama is thinking 30 years ahead. And the second thing he said is people do not realize that man's power, mental power. It wasn't so much his physical power because he was only an 80 kilogram man, but his mental power. And he said, so at the time I challenged him, at the instant I challenged him, he said it was 50-50. 10 seconds later, it was 90-10. And 15 seconds later, it was 100-0. And this is from a man who had, he was famous for, he, his karate was famous. And he was supremely confident in his karate. And even with that, he said in 15 seconds, Masoyama controlled the situation so perfectly that within 15 seconds, he knew that all chances he had were over. Very in, interesting. In, by the way, you mentioned that you were there in 1979. Am I correct? You you did. Yes. Did you did you yeah. attend the second World Open live? Yes, I did. Okay. I was. Uh, I helped interpret that as well. There are, you, I was never the only interpreter. Yeah. You know, I have to clarify that. Over a period of 17 years, I acted as Masayama's interpreter and also translator. He would ask me to translate certain things, written things. Um, but at any time, there were other people who would serve as his interpreter. Um, David Bunt from New York. Everyone called him Banto Sensei. He was an English teacher in Japan. When he was in Japan, he also served from time to time as Solsai's translator. So, you know, um, uh, that was something which was a real privilege but i wasn't always the only one do you have any insight or at least any insight that you want to talk about about what really happened in the semifinals of the second world open with willie williams who by the way i sparred with hundreds of times um so i knew him quite well he was an amazing man i have no doubt and uh, of course I would never go be so bold as to call him a friend, but of course, during the process of the second world tournament, um, I met him and uh, more than once I was asked as an interpreter to give my opinion on what happened. And uh, it was still an early time where Japan couldn't wrap their head around losing. And it appeared to me that he had been told probably by Shigeru Oyama that no matter what happened, he'd probably lose. You know, it doesn't, he'd have to literally knock them out. And even if he knocked them out, they'd find a way to, you know, um, turn it round by saying, well, no, you pushed or you grabbed or you, who knows. So it was still at a time when not just Masoyama, but everyone who, every Japanese referee and person involved, you might remember that of the four corner judges, there are always at least two Japanese. So it was always very difficult to uh, get a decision. And I mean, as a result of that, I always taught the students that if you want to get a draw, you have to get a wasari. If you want to get a decision, you have to get a knockout. It's the only way you can win in Japan. And so he had, I think at some stage been told, no matter what happens, he's not going to win. So, and Sampei was his next opponent. So he just like spat the dummy. Fair enough, you know, good on him. I, okay. I think it was one of those moments in Kyokushin history that uh, people are bet they, they just forget about. And consequently, you know, the 
third world tournament was quite a threat for the foreigners. And then the fourth world tournament came along and Andy Hoog made the final. Um, I had my money on Adamir da Costa, but his his semi, his quarterfinal against uh, Michelle, uh, Michelle Vadel from was one of the greatest fights in history. In fact, I did a one and a half or one meter by three quarters of a meter oil painting of that and gave it to uh, Adamir da Costa as a gift. I was so um, moved by that fight. And of course, after going, I think, five extensions with the great Michelle Vadel, when he faced Andy in the next round, he just, his legs, his legs were yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm quite familiar with that whole tournament and it was a great tournament. Speaking of the Japanese judging, I think if we look at the evolution of it, first of all, you have the first World Open in 1975 where Masoyama said, from what I understand, if a Japanese fighter doesn't take, I think it was like first, second, and third place, or forgot that he's going to kill himself. So already the judges are under pressure. And then as it evolved, even in the fourth World Open, I think Michael Thompson had a terrible decision against him. Um, do you think that the Japanese judges are just like, yeah, of course we're unfair, but too bad. This is how it is. If you don't want to fight, don't fight. Or do you think they actually think, no, we're being fair. They, they, they've kidded, the, they've fooled themselves into actually think that they are fair. I think, I think you're spot on there, Pete. I think there's a bit of both. I think some of them are actually, they're honest in their opinion and that they're a little bit biased, but they don't even realize their own bias. You know, they're in their head, no one knows karate like the Japanese. And so um, they would be judging and refereeing with one hand over one eye. They wouldn't even see things. That decision with Matsui, Michael Thompson, I, I, I was watching, I was in the fourth world tournament, so I was watching pretty close. Uh, and I think the first round, the, the, the Honsen, the main round, was legitimately a draw. I think the first extension, Michael Thompson won hands down. Exactly, but they made him keep fighting. Of course, he got KO'd. Yeah, and then he had, there's no doubt that um, he got beaten in the end. But I think you're right. And I think this is one of the things that the Japanese work on is they know that that Japanese, that they have that, uh, that, never give up fighting spirit that what they call in Japanese akedame, kimochi. they would never give up and so their theory is well then um, if it's you know if, if it's even close to a draw we'll give a draw and the Japanese will keep fighting and keep fighting whereas most Westerners generally speaking would train for one round or train for the knockout or the wazari the Japanese would train with the potential of going for round after round after round. And also Michael, so, Thompson, Michael Thompson in the fifth World Open had another bad decision. He he lost some decision, you know, decision, but it was pretty ridiculous. I always kind of felt bad for Michael Thompson. He couldn't he couldn't catch a break as great a fighter as he was. But of course he he, like many others, in around 1991, moved over to Sato Kaikan. Um I don't think it was that early. I don't know. I think, I think you're right. Maybe it was 92. Yeah, I think in 92 was when he was 92. Steve Arneal left Kyokushin and Michael Thompson went with him, of course. You know, look, these these decisions about breaking up, the, it's, it's all part of history now. Um, I have, I'm deeply respectful of Michael Thompson and his fighting style had a very strong influence on my own teaching and my own students. If you ever watch Gary O'Neill. I, I was I was about to say, look, Gary O'Neill had to have um, modeled himself to a degree after that. It's obvious. Yeah, he was only a little boy. He was really in 91 uh, around the time of the Fifth World Tournament. He was only 15 or 16 years old. But he had started to train with me at 13. So it was at that point, and already we'd started to do um, some pretty innovative footwork, uh, which wasn't based on Michael Thompson. And then the influence of Michael Thompson came, and we thought, wow, look at this, look at this, this amazing movement. And particularly the way he would move, and then he did this really subtle thing where 
if, if you could imagine his feet moving forward and back. And then what he'd do is when he was ready for the back kick, he wouldn't just move forward. He'd actually heel forward. So he's on his toes. And then what he'd do is he'd put his heel where his toe was. And that would literally give him two foot lengths. And then he'd just spin that kick. And it was just, we just spent hours trying to work on that. And, and, and uh, it was just a breathtaking. And for a man his size to be able to move like a lightweight. Solsai said something really interesting, which I took to heart and I still teach today. He said, uh, a lightweight should train and fight like a heavyweight and a heavyweight should train and fight like a lightweight. I like that. And it is because if the heavyweight trains like a lightweight, he's working on all the qualities that he doesn't have, the agility, the speed, the explosiveness. Whereas a lightweight, if he trains like a heavyweight, he's working on the qualities he doesn't have. He doesn't have that horsepower, that weight behind the punch, that that strong base and so on. So it's it's um, one of the things that we did with our fighters. So I had two main fighters in the early days. Wally Schnaubel was a heavyweight. Uh, he did very well. He won the um, board-breaking award in the six-world tournament, made the final 16 uh, multiple times. He fought everywhere. Um, he became a politician. And he, yes, he's now a politician in his home country. Um, and Gary was a lightweight, and they spent a lot of time training. They were first two Uchideshi. And so Gary used to train with Wally, and he would train like Wally, and then Wally would train like Gary. So Wally was um, amazingly quick for a big man. So anyway, that's that was a side deal. What do you what do you think about this? If you look at the stances of the fighters in the first world open, like Royama and Sato, well, more Royama, but they didn't have their hands like this. They had their right hand nice and low, almost over their solar plexus. Their left hand was up and their right hand was almost almost protecting their groin, almost like they were having a street fight and protecting their groin almost. Um, and then it kind of, as time went on in Kyokushin, it, it evolved to more of a boxer stance with both hands up. But back in the 70s and probably the 60s, that right hand was very low. In fact, my teacher, uh, the cover of his you know technique manual back in the 60s and 70s, he was standing you know like this with the, the right hand low. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of evolution of the change of the stance? Uh, yeah. I think if you look at the, the first thing you have to remember is Masayama didn't like gloves. And you would have experienced too, there's a world of difference between training with boxing gloves and not training with boxing gloves. Uh, and so if you look at the stances of the old bare fist boxes back in the uh, early 1900s or even late 1800s, they resembled more karate fighters because they, they, they didn't have the leisure of a, a glove where if you threw a punch, that 12 ounce and my 12 ounce meant 24 ounces of padding. So you could just cover. You know, the reality was in bare fist fighting, if you did that, you'd knock yourself out. So uh, the evolution, I think, from that was one, they were bare fist fighters. Two, their style of ichigeki hisats, their approach was never wear them down. It wasn't it wasn't bigger to bogger to bigger to bogger to bigger to big big bigger. It was always I'm going to come in, I'm going to take a step, knock your hand down and knock you out with one big punch. And that, I think, is the foundation to this stance where this hand, I used to fight like that too, where this hand not only guarding the solar plexus, because from my experience, yeah, it guarded the solar plexus a bit, but more to the point, it was just zeroed in right at the opponent's jaw. And even if you got mud thrown in your eyes it doesn't matter you're just going to shuffle forward and let that punch go and it land right on the opponent's jaw so i think that's one reason and that wouldn't work with gloves on because the padding wouldn't allow it to happen so the the Kyokushin stance is very much designed around non gloves the the lower hands as well meant that uh you you weren't under pressure to block the speed punches to the head. Um, you could always punch to the head. It's it's never a problem that Kyokushin fighters can't punch to the head. That always, I think it's a bit, that's 
that's a middle punch. You lift it up two inches, that's a head punch. So they can punch in their head. There's no, the problem is head movement. They do, they're not used to seeing the punches come to the head. And even if they did, the referee would step in and go, you're not allowed to punch in the head. So if their training revolved, revolved uh, focused on tournament fighting, they would literally spend an entire career with never really having to deal with the whole idea of a head punch. So it's very possible that the hands are down in a very safe way. I think over time what happened was people became very, very innovative with their kicks. They were doing things in the third and fourth world tournament with kicks that no one was doing in the first world tournament. The most impressive fighter in the first world tournament, I think, was Oishi Daigo. Yeah, he, he came fifth. Yep. He mm -hmm. was he was uh, a he, supreme kicker. Yeah, if he fought Frank Clark, I think he officially yes. won the fight, but I think Frank Clark beat him up and he couldn't continue. I think whatever happened, his his kicks were just um, amazing. But other than that, most of them were just heavy low kickers or body punches or heavy body kickers and so on. It's only from the third. Uh, Adamita Costa in the third world tournament. Andy Hook was a brown belt in the third world tournament, but even then he was clearly someone on a on a run. Uh, Matsui in the third world tournament. Uh, all these people had innovative kicks. And then the fourth world tournament, of course, everything started to change. And then Midori turns up in the fifth world tournament. He's knocking guys out from five meters away. So I think the evolution was that you needed to get your hands up because these kicks are coming so much quicker now. Guys were far more confident to stand in what I call I call range three. It's that you're close enough to headbutt and elbow. And from there, that's, they're knocking guys out. Narushima sensei and, 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 you know, Midori and these people, their ability to bang, pick that kick up. So if you didn't have your hand up, you weren't going to block it. Yes, agreed. Um, you know, Masoyama, at least I read, has a fourth degree black belt in judo, and it was a type of judo that focused on the ground. So it was actually a Japanese judo, and the branch of that Japanese judo was not from the Kodokan, but was from a branch that was similar to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, with that said, I don't remember Masoyama, but I could be mistaken, of course. I don't remember him teaching much about ground techniques or the possibility of landing on the ground or 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 the uh, benefit of knowing how to fight on the ground. Meanwhile, he was a fourth degree ground fighter. So do you have any insight to his thoughts on or teachings about fighting on the ground, if any? Uh, I could talk for five hours on this. But um, first thing is, if you read This Is Karate, he devoted a whole chapter to groundwork. Chapter 15 is called Lying Down Techniques. Now, you've got to remember that Richard Gage, who was the interpreter, had no precedent. So he had to come up with words. So we know newaza. We know it now. We call it groundwork. But the word groundwork didn't exist when he interpreted it. So neru, the verb means to lie down. So he translated newaza as lying down techniques. Masayama wrote a whole chapter about it. Uh, and in that chapter, he says, uh, neglect groundwork at your own peril. He said, if you get taken down by a wrestler or a judo player and you don't know what to do, you're in big trouble. Now, in about 1951 or 52, there was actually going to be a fight between Lou Fez, the world professional wrestler. wrestling champion and Rocky Marciano, the world heavyweight boxing champion. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about this fight and who would win. And if you look at uh, Sports Illustrated in about 19, I can't remember the, I tried to get a copy of it. I couldn't, um, about 1952, they interviewed a number of fighters. And of course, all the boxers were saying Rocky Marciano is going to knock him out. Uh, Masoyama was fighting in Japan, in America, as part of a, a tag or a group, two brothers called the Togo brothers. Mm -hmm. So he fought under the name of Mas Togo. 
and in this Sports Illustrated, Mass Togo gets interviewed. Now he's someone that we recognize as a stand-up fighter, but in the interview he says, Rocky Marciano's a great fighter and a real world champion, a great puncher, but I don't think he realizes the danger he's in if, if Luthez gets hold of him. And I think if Luthez gets hold of him and takes him to the ground, Rocky Marciano is not going to have any answers to it. Now, in that, in that line, I remember I used to train for a period. Uh, my work took me to Los Angeles pretty well every couple of weeks, and I would spend uh, days at a time training at a place called the Boxing Works, and later on at the R1 gym with a wrestling coach named Rico Ciparelli, one yep. of the Iowa Hawkeye greats. Yep. And at that time, there was Rico, Randy Couture, Dan Henderson, Frank Trigg, Vlad Matsienska, uh, and at one of those occasions, Randy Couture was getting ready to to fight uh, James Tony, one of the great boxing knockout pros of all time. I was, I was at that fight. I was there live. Okay, well, I'm in the gym before the fight. I didn't see the fight. And what they were doing was practicing low singles. Yep. And a, a, the difference between a single leg and a low single is the single leg takes the, the leg with the head on the body. A low single attacks below the knee. Mm -hmm. And and James Tony was saying, this princess has never fought a, a hard puncher. I'm going to show him what it's like to actually fight a hard puncher. And literally, we were looking at that comment and Rico is shaking his head going, why would we want to? trade punches with a puncher and I, I keep going off on tangents but I remember another time I was sitting with Gene LaBelle and Gene LaBelle said to me how would you beat Mike Tyson and I'm going oh yeah good question not sure how he said tennis badminton beat him at anything you want just don't try and beat him at boxing and that's a really wise thing to say and so Randy Couture who was you know world-class Greco-Roman wrestler he had no intention of trade trading punches with James Tony. And if you watched the, if you saw the fight, he's in, in 20 seconds later, low single takes him down, ended up, I think on his back and, and um, finished the fight that way. And James Tony didn't get a single punch him. on him. I think he choked him from the mount, but I think you may be right. Right. Yeah. But either way, James Tony didn't get a punch on him. Yeah. You know, so this is what, uh, uh, I think we have to keep in mind too, when you look at the evolution of Chokushin fighting too, at the first world tournament, most of the non-Japanese had never seen a thigh kick. And right. so you just had, you had Royama, Shihan just railing off thigh kicks at these poor people who'd never seen them before because most of their fighting was non-contact karate, you see. Did they, did, did Masoyama, to your knowledge, understand the Gaidan Mwashigiri before he discovered Thai boxers doing it? Or did he learn learn about it from Thai boxing? I tend to think they learned it from that experience in 1964. Yeah. They uh, they also learned to click with the Shin in 1964. Before then, the uh, Mwashigiri was with the Chusoku. And um, even into the body, and it's still very, very valuable to, to stab the ball of the foot and the toes into the body. It's a different type of kick. But that Muay Thai whipping style of the shin, I think they got from their experience training in Thailand as well as uh, as well as the thigh kick. You know, one interesting thing about that 1964 fight, of course, Kyokushin won two of the three, the two of the three fights by KO. And I think it was Kurosaki who was not going to fight and had not really trained, but he was the one who lost. But what's really interesting... Well, Yasuhiko was meant to fight. He was, but then he he couldn't make it eventually. Yes. Um, but what's interesting about the Kurosaki loss, like he got elbowed in the face and then he lost. If you look at the very beginning of the fight, the very, very first seconds of the fight, he just clinches the guy, takes him down, lands on top of him. I mean, if it was a street fight, he would have won the fight. But of course, in, yeah, the, yeah. in the in the Thai boxing rules, he lost, and I thought that was a real testament to that old Kyokushin realistic street training because he was against one of the you know a, a top Thai boxer, 
just clinches him, takes him down. He had him at his mercy. Of course, the yep. referee said, what are you doing? You know, stand up. This, this is not, yep. we don't do that. He could have headbutted him, whatever he wanted. So was, that was interesting. I think it's, you know, going back to your question about groundwork, I think, you know, there is that entire chapter in This Is Karate that people don't even, you say that to them, there's a whole chapter in groundwork in the karate, in the This Is Karate. They go, oh, no, I don't even remember seeing that. It's like they don't even see it because it's not in their brain. Now, once I took This Is Karate, was What Is Karate and Advanced Karate, the three main English language books of Soulside. And what's that? I don't know. Some balloons. A bunch of, yeah. Um, And what I did was I counted every single technique that he taught in those three books. And I didn't count the same technique repeated. I only would count one technique once and added them all up. And I divided them into five ranges. Uh, All of my training now is based around five ranges, the kick range, punch range, headbutt, elbow range, stand up grapple range and ground range and i counted those techniques and i divided them up into the five ranges and of course for all intents and purposes kyogushin tournaments only allow range only allow range one and two kicks and punches they don't allow the grappling and the groundwork but it was interesting that 72 percent of the techniques that solsai teaches in those three books are illegal in tournament fighting they're all close range, everything from headbutts to what he called gyakute. Gyakute is just Japanese for grappling, hand up, hand grappling, takedowns, throws, chokes, um, wrist locks, arm bars, and so on. So the fact that Kyokushin is probably best known for its tournament fighting belies the fact that well beyond that is this whole body of knowledge. And if you look at it's like judo. Judo joined the Olympics in in 64. But if you look at judo before that, you know, you said that the Sone Dojo was, you know, it was still attached to um, Kodokan, but they did focus on groundwork. Now he was, Sosa was there, you know, at, at least a decade before the Olympics. So even judo rules then didn't have the same time limit on the ground. If you look back at the original 1920 judo rules, there was no time limit on the ground. The, to- the fights would go for 20 minutes. And if it went to the ground, well, then they had to fight out of it if they wanted to get back. But of course, when you go to the Olympics, you look at the karate in the Olympics and you can see what uh, devastating effect going to the Olympics can have on, uh, on a martial art, turns it into what the Olympics require it to be a safe sport. Well, judo was the same. The focus from groundwork went, but the Kosen judo, that type of judo that you're referring to where they still focus on the ground, basically retained the pre-Olympic judo rules. And Kosen, uh, excuse me, what's he? Sorry about it. I'm just getting over a bad cold. And Kosen is practiced today in many of the... uh, technical colleges and universities and high schools. That's what Korsen means. It means high school and technical colleges. Um, the Kohl refers to high school, the Sen refers to technical colleges. So it's still preserved in those areas. And it was very much uh, uh, a groundwork style of Judo. And Solsai being very close friends with Kimura Masahiko, the great Judo player. They were, they were yeah, um, he needed, he wanted to learn the skills that he was lacking. And there's no doubt that his stand-up skills were good. So he was directed to go to this Sone Dojo where uh, they specialized in the groundwork. But he oh. also understood, understood that if he wanted to make Kyokushin popular, see, I've spent a lot of time refereeing MMA fights. And one thing you notice is, when the fight, in the, especially in the early days, back in the 90s, if you're refereeing an MMA fight and it would go to the ground, the crowd would start yelling, boo, stand them up, stand, because they didn't understand it. You can be watching it and one of the fighters will shift his elbow and cover his underhook and you think, man, that guy just moved and it changed the whole complexion of the fight. But the, the non-experienced crowd don't see that. What they want is the knockout. So even in UFC, 
you know, if someone gets a tap, it's happy. But if someone gets a knockout, the crowd goes wild. So people understood that. And so I could see that the technicality, the technical requirements of, of grappling and grabbing and so on was way beyond the capacity of the untrained spectator to appreciate. What they did appreciate was a good knockout. You know, so that's why he's he stuck to those rules. It's interesting. Um, when my teacher, Shiguro Oyama, the last few years of his life, um, I would see him when I could. I would take him out to dinner or things like that. And I have a friend. I have a friend uh, in Manhattan who is a not a Kyokushin fighter, but is a great, great martial artist. Just a he's just you know great stand up, great ground. He's a good at Filipino knife fighting. I mean, he's just a one of the most well rounded martial artists I know in the world, and he's really legit. You know, with a capital L, great guy too. Anyway, I was with him once. I think it was around 2014. Uh, in, in his in his academy in Manhattan. And I said, you know, my teacher, who's, you know, elderly now, but uh, maybe he would give you a private lesson. So my friend said, great, you know, can you set it up? So I called Soshi and I asked him if he would like to uh, come and give my friend a private lesson, which I said I would be happy to, you know, be there for and help in any way I could. So we set it up. And he gave my friend, you know, a good, you know, Kyokushin type lesson, very good stand up, great stuff. My friend really appreciated it. And there was about 15 minutes left in the lesson. And I think Soshu said, you know, do you have any questions? And my friend started asking him self-defense scenarios. You know, someone tries to get you in a headlock, so, you know, just self-defense and all of a sudden, Soshi was showing stuff that, I mean, I was a student. I, I I was with him, you know, there were times I was with him two hours a day, seven days a week. You know, I was. For years, I, right? I was, excuse me? For years, right? Yeah, for years. I, I was almost like a yeah. Nuchi Jeshi, but I had my own apartment. So I wasn't officially a Nuchi Jeshi, but I might as well have been for part of that mm. time. But anyway, but the point is, he was showing, I, I, I don't know if it was Aikijutsu, I don't know what it was. He was showing like these, I mean, it wasn't Aikido. I don't know what it was, but these locks, these, it was incredible. I mean, like I never knew he knew that stuff, but he mm. learned it somewhere. I don't know if it was mm. like stand-up locks or judo. Mm. Really incredible. So that was that was uh, something I'll never forget. And I'm glad I got to say it now because maybe some of my old uh, Kyokushin buddies will watch this video. I never really talked about that, but that was a great day. But a question I wanted to ask you is your thoughts, if you have any, about kind of a controversial figure in Kyokushin history. I guess maybe not controversial, I guess, depends who you ask, but that's John Blooming. And the reason I want to ask about John Blooming is because, of course, for those who don't know, John Blooming was a Dutch uh, judo and karate fighter. I think he was a sixth Don under Masayama, I believe. Um, he was very good at judo. He was presumably good at Kyokushin. He, he was a big, tough, strong guy, which I'm sure didn't hurt his ability to fight. Um, from my experience, by watching a few videos of him, he looked like he was better at judo than he was at karate, but that's just my opinion. With that said, he wrote a book, I don't know if you read it or heard about it, but he wrote a book, which I actually bought years ago. It's like half in Dutch, half in English. Like you could you could read the Dutch part or the English part. They're like touching each other. But um, he kind of discounted a lot of stuff about Masayama. He, again, he could be completely mistaken, of course. But he said, well, you know, Masayama was a great guy. He was like a father to me. I loved him. But, you know, he really never fought. And he just kind of discounted all these things about him and all these kind of uh, things that Masayama is famous for. He just kind of made light of like, oh, I don't even know how much of that ever happened or whatever. So anyway, I was just wondering if you were familiar with that or if you knew him or if you. Yeah, uh, I knew him quite well, actually. Yeah. And um, I spent a lot of time talking to him uh, about these things. 
the interesting thing was whenever he said about Maso, it's almost like I think there was a little jealousy. I, I think he felt as though Masoyama was getting a lot more attention than he deserved. So he he felt like you know in in Australia we call it the tall poppy syndrome. If you're a taller poppy, you get chopped off. In Japanese, they say, uh, deru kugi wa utareru. The, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, right? So um, he would he would always badmouth Solsai, but at the end of it and go, but anyway, I loved him. It's like, you know, and he was my teacher. You have to remember, he didn't really spend a lot of time with Masayama. He, he only spent a very small amount of time Masayama would go in and out. The six Dan, I believe he was the first non-Japanese to receive the six Dan off Masayama. But it was at a time he was maybe six foot five and he's in a dojo full of guys that were five foot five and his judo was sublimely world-class, there's no doubt about it. So if it came to um, fighting, there was very little that these guys could do against him. There's no doubt about that. Um, now, Having said that, you've got to remember that most of his information about Masayama came from Kurosaki. And Kurosaki had been, you know, Kurosaki went to Holland. He was sent to Holland to, you know, teach Kyokushin there. But also he was um, expelled from Kyokushin for a few problems. So he was angry with Masayama. Once again, he was probably a little jealous. Uh, you know, the pressure was on him to create that team to go to Thailand and the team was successful, but it was always recognized as Masoyama's Kyokushin, whereas he felt, Kurosaki felt that he probably didn't get the recognition that he deserved training these this team, even though the training he was doing was along the guidelines that were given to him by Masoyama. It was largely psychological training. You know, he'd have them train in... Uh, in small rooms with closed windows so they'd run out of oxygen and so by the time they got to Lumpini and Bangkok it was the heat the suppressive heat was nothing to them they was used to it already this is the style of training that Masayama thought about so John Blooming spent far less time with Masayama than he did with Kurosaki Shia and so most of his information came from Kurosaki okay and you sorry yeah Okay, so the other, other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, we, you know, we talked about John Blooming, excellent answer, and earlier we had mentioned, um, we had mentioned, uh, who was Nanomiya's teacher? I forgot his name already. Nanomiya's teacher. Ashihara Shihara. Right, right, right. Ashihara. So, right. So we had mentioned Ashihara and his personality. You know, we mentioned that, but you know, one thing, and look, obviously, in life, you can have two very good people who just have their differences. It doesn't mean, you know, just because people have a uh, argument doesn't mean one is good, one is bad. You can have two very nice people. They just have their disagreements. But I always was a little curious, and I'm curious of your opinion, about Tadashi Nakamura, because he seems like a really nice guy. And he, of course, wrote a book that was very critical of Masoyama. Um, I just wonder if you have any input on that whole scenario. Well, yeah, look, there are so many influences in the background of the relationships between these people uh, that it's very difficult to talk about in a way that doesn't make one of them or the other seem like a little small-minded and petty. The reality is uh, it's a little bit like when Matsui, look, first of all, you look at Kyokushin after Solsai died and you realize what a powerful personality he was to keep all those powerful individuals in control and, and working together. Like you say, um, it's never a state that one may be right, one may, that may both be very strong and both. I think it was um, Niels Bohr said the opposite of a truth is, is a falsehood, but the opposite of an absolute truth is another absolute truth. Well, it's a very similar thing in the martial arts. It's just because two people Look, in my opinion, there's only one martial art. You take all the fighting arts of the world, they're actually all just variations of a single theme. 
And the only thing that changed them was the set of rules that they chose to train under and compete under. So in the early days, even Solsai says in his book that Taijutsu, which means the body arts, was essentially one. And from Taijutsu, you got Aiki Jiu-Jitsu and Kempo and all these different things. Someone wanted to continue on grabbing and choking. Someone else wanted to poke in the eye and punch them out. So this essentially, if you were to take high-level martial artists and put them in the room with a life-threatening danger, you can be fairly sure that the karate guys will be grabbing and biting and, and the judo guys will be poking and punching. So the reality is, is there's only one martial art. It's just that the variations are dependent on the place, the time, the history, the culture, and uh, the rule set that they want to train under. So even within Kokushin, you saw a lot of growing disagreement. And Masayama, I remember I had a conversation with Masayama once, and he pointed out that this is when a few people had started to leave. And he said, well, yep, they're leaving, but they're not really innovating. You look at Kyokushin and, and what it did to the martial art world when it left was so unique and so innovative. And you could very strongly argue that Kyokushin is the source of all the full contact styles today. Even, even the word kickboxing was coined by one of the guys associated with that initial Muay Thai versus Kyokushin. Um, there was the, one of the promoters of that. Japanese promoters, right? Yes, he uh, coined the word kickboxing in relation to what the Kyokushin guys were doing. So within Kyokushin, you have so many people. Look at John Blumey, and I can understand his argument because I've been training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a long time, and I love Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and it has only added to my own understanding of Kyokushin. You know, certain things which just didn't necessarily make sense before all of a sudden you're going, yeah, that's actually a really good little choke there, you know? So, uh, you can't train with your blinkers on when Solso was talking about all the different breakaways. He said, well, that particular brace or breakaway is just Kyokushin with kickboxing. That one is Kyokushin with Aikido. That one is Kyokushin with Zen meditation. That one is Kyokushin with judo. See, so, um, he was quite adamant that it's really important that people develop their own martial arts. Um, he used to say there's no Kyokushin. There's Masayama Karate, Pete Karate, Cameron Karate. Uh, and so I think uh, the situation with Nakamura Tadashi-han, first of all, he owes a lot to Masayama. Whenever these people, like John Blooming owes a lot to Masayama, it was Masayama that gave him the opportunity to be famous. Because even though his judo was world class, he never really fought in world championships or Olympic games. It was Anton Geisink from Holland who won the gold medal in the heavyweight division. Even though when you speak to John Blooming, he'll tell you that he beat Anton Geisink. But no one remembers John Blooming in judo. Right. They remember Anton Geisink. So there's that side of it too, as a person gets older and they look back on their career and they see these people that in their mind they could beat uh, were the ones getting their credit. Well, of course, who knows what they think and say over time. This is why so many people tend to try and subtly change their history, thinking that people are stupid, but they're not. You know. So with this situation with Nakamura Tadashi, look, um, I think, Definitely, if you were to walk into his dojo, and I have, I have no doubt you have, I have, and it's the nature and the energy and the personality of the dojo is cheese and chalk compared to Kyokushin. Uh, now, perhaps he saw what happened to his own students in the first world tournament and felt that uh, it was unfair, but because of the senpai kohai thing in Japan, he all he could do was bow his head and zip the lip, but he'd been living in America. So Americans were saying to them, no, you know, you've, you've got your, your own man, you've got to stand up and do your own thing. And there's that conflict of, of societal pressures. He was Japanese, but he was living in America. And this is 
why so many of them had trouble adjusting. You know, they turned to whatever to get through life. So I think there was that con, and he left soon after the world first world tournament. In fact, when I was at Hombu uh, in the January, um, his name, no, you weren't even allowed to say the name. So also I was so upset that he'd left because he really did see him as a son, you know. So you never know the whole story. Yeah. Okay. And, excellent, excellent answer. Just switching gears a little bit as we're getting close to wrapping up. When it comes to um, the spiritual aspects of Kyokushin, um, whether it's the Makso, the meditation, whether it's sitting in Seiza, whether it's you know pushing yourself beyond the limits you thought you had, the, the, the many things, the many spiritual aspects that, excuse me, the many spiritual aspects that are touched upon just by being a Kyokushin practitioner. Um, what are your thoughts on spirituality in Kyokushin? Well, when I was a child, we had church school on Wednesday afternoons. We had Sunday school. I grew up in a Protestant family, even though my father was Catholic originally. So we had a very strong Catholic influence. If you're Catholic, uh, you have a very strong presence of religious education in your life from very early on and then at some point that sent, tended to uh dissipate more you know you weren't allowed schools we used to um say prayers before school and then that was stopped as as cultures became more multicultural you had a conflict of religious belief and then you had the movement of atheists moving up and so there was less and less religious education for better or for worse so what happened is people had to try and find ways to uh develop a value system and a belief system their core values were still important but they weren't getting that core value education that they needed so at some point i think the martial arts stepped in and the martial arts then became a way to educate people with a valid value system, core values, belief system, and so on, uh, through the qualities of uh, Japanese, fundamentally Buddhism and, and Shintoism and so on. Uh, there's no conflict, of course, in my opinion. Um, I'm, I would regard myself as being quite religious, but I'm also quite liberally religious. I don't see any conflict between Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Judaism, Christianity, and so on, uh, even Islam. So I think you have a world where there's a void, where people have increasingly become atheistic, but still they want to have the qualities that religion offers, inner peace. Uh, calmness, um, joy, and so on. And it's a very difficult thing to find those in a secular society without drawing upon religious principles and concepts. So this is why I think uh, martial arts is very, very important in the world, uh, even if they don't use religious terms or they don't refer to it as a religion, it's a pseudo religion in the sense that it teaches these spiritual qualities. It teaches you to be a warrior. Now, the, the American poet Walt Whitman is one of my favorite poets, and he wrote he wrote a poem called "As I Pondered in Silence." And fundamentally, that poem he says that he describes a poet who was late at night, you know, burning a candle, pondering upon his poems, and then a ghost came to him. And it was the ghost of all the poets of the past. And the ghost said to him, what are you writing about? He said, don't you know that all the poems of all the poets that ever lived are about one theme? And that's the theme of war and the making of warriors. And if you look at even uh, in Hindu religion, it talks about the different caste system, which they I think they got it wrong at the moment. But basically what they say is when you become a little enlightened, and you start to seek those inner qualities, those inner values, the spiritual qualities, 
the first thing that you must become and you automatically become is a warrior. Because when you are compelled to seek those answers that clarify the meaning of life, you, you then are on a path. You're, you're fighting the battle of life and you are seeking the answers as a warrior. So I think that notion of even look at sport, you know, they don't go out there and say, have a good time. They go out there and they say, this is a war. You go out there and fight and you fight and you give it all. And, you know, doesn't matter what sport it is. They're talking in terms of battle. Well, that's the perfect scenario for a martial art. And Masayama was a deeply, deeply religiously um, inspired by his own teacher, Son Chu, who was very religious, very Buddhist. And so uh, you read Masayama's books, especially in the early days where he talks about uh, there is no value in becoming a fighter without balancing spiritual qualities. He, he used to say that that strength without, without um, um, compassion is violence, but compassion without strength is impotence, you know? And, and so for Solsai, the, the perfect Kyokushin warrior was someone who had that spiritual inner balance along with the outer strength. Great. Hey, listen, awesome answer to wrap up an awesome interview. Thank you. Um, I learned a lot. I loved it. And I, I believe that people, especially Kyokushin practitioners around the world who watch this will really benefit and get some great insights. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate you inviting me along.